Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to John's Gospel, chapter number 15. John's Gospel, chapter number 15. We'll begin here in verse number 9, read down through the 17th verse. And so we're not going to uh, try to cover all of this chapter and text. I think that most of us are familiar enough with, uh, with this passage and this time in Jesus' life. If uh, not, just be mindful that the bulk of the Gospel of John covers essentially the last week of Jesus' life on this earth and his ministry. Uh, and uh, several chapters are dedicated really to this final night of his, of his life before the crucifixion. And so that's where we are here in this text. In John 15, uh, they have left the upper room. They've had the Last Supper. They've celebrated Passover. Uh, Jesus has washed their feet. He's given them uh, instruction. And that instruction now is continuing uh, as they make their way from the upper room into the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to spend all of chapter 15 teaching them about ab abiding in himself and abiding in the Father. Uh, chapter 16, he begins to, he continues to teach them and give instruction about their coming persecution and how the Holy Spirit would be given to give them strength and to give them guidance and to help them uh, along the way. Uh, chapter 17, he goes into prayer. Uh, and it is there that he begins to really let us know the pressure that he's been feeling. He's, he's feeling the weight of what's coming. Uh, as he prays, the pressure so powerful that he begins to sweat uh, blood. Uh, and so, and, you know, a lot of times we go through things in life that we see coming and we, we've never been through them before. And we look ahead and we kind of anticipate and think in our mind, what's this going to be like? And for us, most of the time, whenever you go through something like that, and I realize there are exceptions, but for the most part, um, you go through those things and they end up not being necessarily as bad as what you anticipated. I don't think that you could make that argument in the life of Jesus here. I think, number one, as God, he, he, there was no mystery to him. He knew what it was going to be. But from a human standpoint, there, there's no way in my mind that I can think that, that he could have uh, that, he, that he could have looked at what he had to go through and thought this was less than I anticipated, but that it was worse. And that the burden was there, but he feels the weight. He feels the weight for the whole weeks leading in. And as it gets closer, it just mounts. And so the mindset of the disciples here is somewhat of confusion. It's not that he hasn't been telling them that he's going to, uh, that he's going to be crucified and that he's going to uh, be resurrected, uh, but they clearly have a hard time connecting the dots and coming to a full understanding until the events begin to unfold before them. And so their mindset is somewhat confused, or you can, you can, you have the power to make this not happen, essentially. Uh, you have the ability to uh, avoid all of this, to undo all of this, and, and clearly they would, in their love for him, long uh, for that to be the case, but he's all about doing God's will for what his, his life has been purposed for. He's about fulfilling the scripture. And so in Jesus' heart, he understands clearly and fully what's taking place. And he, in fact, is orchestrating the events of, uh, of everything that's going on as God and making sure that every I is dotted and every T of the prophecy is crossed as these events are unfolded and uh, as the moment draws near the weight begins to mount 
You could say tonight or this morning that what Jesus was experiencing here would be the darkest moments of his existence pre-crucifixion. And with that thought, think about the words that he says to them. In verse number 9, after he's already told them, I'm the vine, you're the branches, I'm the husbandman. This is how you're going to subsist. This is how you're going to exist and make, make be powerful influences for the gospel by allowing the Spirit of God to work through you. And he continues to describe that in verse 9 when he says, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. <clears throat> These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. And I want to speak this morning on the thought, understanding joy. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning again, we ask that you would open our mind's eye to this text, to these principles. I pray that you would help us to uh, be mindful, to evaluate ourselves. Uh, Lord, to allow you to work in our lives. May we be a joyful people the joy, and have the joy that you intend for us to have. In Jesus' name and amen. You know, as we look here, I think the one thing that's true is that the last thing that I would expect for Jesus to be focused on going into his arrest, going into his trials and his scourging, going into the plaiting of the crown of thorns upon his head, going into a crucifixion, is joy. Whenever you think about the things that we have to endure in life and the things that we go through in life, the last thing that we associate with suffering is joy. But what Jesus is emphasizing to them in the midst or on the eve of his or the night of his suffering is be joyful. As he looks at them and says, you're going to be persecuted. He says, be joyful. As you're going to, as he says, you're going to suffer. He says, be joyful. As he looks at them and realizes that, uh, that, that people that should love them are going to betray them, he says, be joyful. And then he tells them how to be joyful. And he says to them uh, where his joy comes from. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. In verse 7 and verse 9, and the as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. But even, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. I Listen, I am abiding not in my suffering. I'm abiding not in what I'm going to face. Uh, my abidance is in the love that my Father has for me and the love that I have for my Father. 
And I've given you this. In verse 11, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy, in other words, Jesus says, the love that my father has for me and the love that I have for my father surpasses my suffering and it gives my heart, fills my heart with joy. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 tell us that for the joy that was set before him, he despised the, or he endured the cross, despising the shame. He, he, for the joy, for us, for the fulfillment of the Father's will, uh, for relationship with the Father and with his children, he is in the midst of suffering, not focused on the pain and the anguish, but focused on the love and what's going to be born of it. And he says, I've given you this, I'm telling you this, that your joy might be full. The word full here uh, means literally to fill to the brim. As if to heap over. You ever fill a cup and you accidentally fill it too much. And it doesn't actually spill. But the liquid is above the rim. That's essentially what the word fool here means. And if anything at all happens. If the table shakes. If you try to adjust it. Pick it up. It's going to spill out. There's not one more drop of joy. That could be put in someone's life. In spite of the difficulty and the hardship that they're going through. That is the essence of the Christian life. That is, is what the world can never understand about a mature Christian's existence and life. How could you be dying and suffering with disease and yet be singing praise to God? How could you be in the midst of your betrayal of others as you hurt? How could you lift up and glorify God and still have Joy. How could you, in the midst of adversity and tragedy and uncertainty, still, it's not that you, that you don't feel the effects of those things, but those things never surpass the joy that God has put in your heart. Those are the things that should be the hallmark of Christian living. Tom Wallace, when he was pastoring in Kentucky, tells the story of, uh, uh, or in Maryland, excuse me, of, of his, his favorite uh, a, a, a event of something that happened that demonstrated this point uh, while he was pastoring the church there. Uh, and he tells about a man who came in, a man by the name of Charles Gabriel. And he was, uh, he was uh, coming in and he was looking around and uh, he was trying to figure out where he could fit in. And it was his first service and the auditorium was packed. And he, he came in and he made his way up all the way to the second row. Uh, it was where he could find a seat and he absorbed every word. And uh, when the invitation was given and when salvation was explained, he leapt out of his seat and he came and he stood right down in the front. He didn't care who was watching. He didn't care if anybody else moved. He just came and he stood there and he stood up straight. Uh, he didn't try to hide from anybody. And, and the, the, there was dealt with there, the altar worker. And salvation was explained. And he says, yes, that's exactly what I need to do. And he gave his heart to Christ. And they talked to him about baptism. And they took him right back to the baptistry room. And as they uh, got ready and uh, the auditorium prepared and and, and he got down into the water and uh, he was baptized down and then he was raised to walk in that newness of life. As he came up out of the water, before his head even clearly emerged, he began to clap his hands and said, hot dog, hot dog, hot dog. <laughs> he didn't understand about hallelujah, praise God or praise the Lord. He just knew that he was joyful and excited about what God had done in his life. That his sins were forgiven. That he was a new creature in Christ. He was loving what God had done to him. 
In Ellicott's commentary, speaking on this passage, he describes and says about joy that the, the joy thought of is that which Christ himself possessed in the consciousness of his love towards the Father and his Father's love towards him. The brightness of that joy lit up the darkest hours of his own human life. And as he wills that it should be light up there. So he's saying to his disciples, uh, the joy of the love of my father that's lightening up my life in this dark hour. It's my will that that same love, that that same joy uh, would light up yours. In the consciousness of their love to God and of God's love to them. That there would be in them as a part of their true life joy which no sorrow could ever overcome. That's what should mark the Christian life. Every Christian should know what it is to experience that. So, Pastor, that's hard. I understand. It is not something natural. It is something that's supernatural. Amen. It comes from walking in the Spirit. It comes in being dead to self. It comes to keeping our eyes focused on God's great love for us with an eternal perspective and not a temporal one. Listen, we all go through things here that are difficult, but they will not last for long in light of eternity. And when we come into the presence of our God, uh, it will be a wonderful experience as all of those things are wiped away. A.W. Tozer, as he preached and taught about this thought, when uh, was talking about other people that he knew that were uh, supernaturally joyful in a way that didn't make sense to most men. He told about George Mueller who would not preach. He refused to preach until his heart was happy in the grace of God. He told about God, Jan Rybach who would not write uh, while his feelings were low but would retire to a quiet place and wait on God until he felt the spirit of inspiration. It's a well-known fact that uh, that. The Moravians uh, convinced John Wesley of the reality of their saving and the, of the Savior Jesus Christ and what true uh, Christian living was all about and so moved him that it helped bring him to a true state of conversion in Jesus Christ. Listen, the Christian owes it to the world, Tozer said, to be filled with joy. Supernaturally. We ought to let all of the things of this life, the cares of this world, evaporate before the love of God and our love for God. That's how much God loves us. That's how much we should love Him. Uh, Mr. Uh, Evanson, Henry Evanson, talked about, uh, about joy and looking joyful and having a joyful countenance and how important it is uh, that Christians don't look like they're sucking on lemons all the time and, uh, and uh, especially when they're engaged with others and, uh, and, and he said that a smile uh, talked about what a smile creates and he wrote this it costs nothing but it creates much it enriches those who receive it without impoverishing those who give it it happens in a flash and the memory of it sometimes lasts forever none are so rich that they can get along without it and none are so poor but are richer for its benefits. It fosters goodwill in a business. It creates happiness within the home. And it's, it is the countersign of friends. It is a rest to the weary. It is daylight to the discouraged. It is sunshine to the sad. And it is nature's best antidote for trouble. Where's our joy this morning, Christian? 
How long has it been since someone looked at you when you walked into their presence and said, there's something joyful, supernaturally so, about them? How long has it been since you looked at someone that you knew who was suffering and said, I wish that if I ever come into the place of suffering like they are, that I would have the joy of the Lord in my life like they do. Uh, and so that great desire, that great longing, listen, the Christian life by its very nature should be a joyful life. And when the Bible talks of it, it doesn't paint it as something uh, that is easy to obtain. It gives it generally an association with trial or suffering. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7, it says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor of the glory of the appearing of the Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. In the midst of suffering, the joy of the Lord is such. In 1 Peter chapter number 4, and verse 12, he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, and that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. A joy that the world cannot understand. A joy, quite honestly, that the average Christian will never understand. Uh, a joy that you cannot experience until you're dead to self and led of the Spirit. It is what God wills for us. So how do we understand this unique trait of the Christian life? How do we understand what it is biblically? How do we put it into practice in our life? How can we allow God to work within us? And so the first thing that I want to see this morning, this, is joy defined. If we're going to have joy, we must first understand what joy is. And so joy defined. In other words, we're going to look this morning at the source of joy. Joy comes from somewhere. Happiness can come from circumstances. Joy transcends circumstance. I think when you see what the Bible talks about and what gives in relation to joy is that it's often in conjunction with trials and suffering. And the message is clear that joy is not reliant upon circumstance. Happiness is. But I can have joy in the midst of suffering. And that joy can give me a measure of happiness even in a time uh, of great sorrow. But they are two separate things. The word joy here in this text is the Greek word chara, which means cheerfulness. It also means calm delight and gladness. And it has to do with the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, and when we look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. There are others that continues on, and we'll look at that, but I want you to notice the significance of the first three. Love, joy, peace. When I have the love of God, when I have love for God, what it brings into my life, that love brings joy and peace. We all want peace. We all want uh, to uh, have the rest that comes from having a heart and a mind that's in harmony with the love and the peace of God. It brings long-suffering, gentleness. Are we gentle to one another? Goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Do we exercise self-control? Against such, 
There is no law, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh. There's the key. How do I have this? Crucifying the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. The Christian is to walk in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as Jesus did. And so we look at the word joy here, chara, cheerfulness, calm, delight, gladness. And it comes from the word chairo, which means to rejoice or to be glad, to rejoice exceedingly. It's not just a light gladness. It is an exceeding, overflowing joy that, will, that signifies that will be well and that will thrive. In other words, the Christian life... And the Christian is his walk with God in the midst of even adversity and suffering should be not just okay, but doing well and even thriving in the midst of adversity because they have joy that comes from the knowledge that my father loves me and I love him and everything else pales in comparison. Amen. Joy comes from, first of all, a love relationship with the father. Notice in verse number 9, as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. It is a love relationship with the Father. The word love here is interesting because it uses the word, it, it culminates with the word for love that we all are familiar with and that we know. But it, it is two words that are two separate Greek words used here. When he says, as the Father hath loved me, when he says, so have I loved you, the word that's used here is agapao, which means simply this. Uh, it means that to welcome, and notice the progression in the relationship. It is to welcome, uh, it is to entertain, it is to be fond of, it is then to love dearly, it is to become well pleased, and that it is to be contented with. When you have relationships that are built and that are growing, you become, uh, as, it, as you meet someone, as you're introduced to someone, you're, you're welcoming, you're entertaining, you have some interaction and some fellowship, and then you grow over time fond of them, and then you come to love them dearly, and then you're, you're pleased with them to the point that, uh, that you are content with them. It's as in a, a, a couple that's been married for decades that uh, that they've they they met and they and they spent time together and they came to love one another dearly and that love that dear love is not diminished diminished but but you're content with one another. In other words, my wife is enough for me and I'm enough for her. We don't need anything else because she's enough and I'm enough. That's the relationship that's described here when Jesus says that as God, my Father, has loved me, so have I loved you. I have been introduced to you. I have entertained you. I have fed you. I have nourished you. I have poured my spirit into you. I have grown dear to you. You have grown dear to me. I am enough. Is Jesus enough for you this morning? Is God enough for me? That love relationship with Him. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love, agape. Agapa, oh, we don't hear much about. Agape we hear. We resonate with. 
agape meaning that brotherly love and affection and goodwill that is the highest and deepest form of love that we that man knows and can experience it's interesting that its very definition closes with the description of agape as being a love fest it is a festival of love that's what the christian life is supposed to be I'm not talking about that it's all flowery and that it's all, uh, that it's all laughter and that there's never trials and that there's never trouble. What, I'm, what the point is and what the point that Jesus is making and what the definition of the word truly means is this, is that compared to all else, it is completely lost and erased by love. That love that God has for us, that love that we have for God. It is a love relationship with the Father. Notice, as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. Not to love as man, not to love as we know, not to love where we are, but to be continually growing and developing and focusing on the love of God until we come to the place in our lives where the love that God has for us is the same love that we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. How different of a world we would live in, how different our interchurch relationships would be if we became obedient to the Lord Jesus' command to love other believers as he loved us. And as we see this morning, it is a love relationship with the Father, joy being divine, the source of that joy. It is the Father's love and our love for Him. It is a love relationship with the Father and it is a love relationship with fellow believers. I cannot have joy if I do not have love for my fellow believer. The Bible says in Philippians chapter number 2 in verses 1 through 3, as he lays this out here, he says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Listen, I cannot demonstrate the love of God if I walk around thinking that I'm better, I'm more spiritual, I have a higher plane, I'm on a higher plane of Christian living than someone else. I have to come to the place where we're of one mind, of one accord. Does that all mean that we're all at the same place in our Christian life? Of course not. It's ridiculous to think that a brand new Christian would be as mature in their spiritual walk as someone that had been saved for decades and living for God and studying the Bible. But in God's view, there's no less love and there's no less ability for Him to use that person to bring others to Christ. Sometimes brand new believers are better at reaching the lost than people that have been saved for a lot of years. When we look and we understand that to have that joy, it is manifested by a love relationship. It, it flows from a love relationship with our Father and with fellow believers. 
I would say this, that without these love relationships, the Christian life becomes a burdensome yoke. If you're living a Christian life that is, that is suffocating and that is defeating and that is unrewarding, it is simply because the love relationship that you have with your father and your understanding of his love and your love for him and your love for the brethren is lacking. And when we look and we understand that as a Christian without joy lacks peace, conversion, or compassion, and sees everything that our fellow, else about our fellow believers, we come to realize that without these relationships, the Christian life becomes a burdensome yoke. But with them, it is a sustainer of life through every trial. It sustains us. Our, our brothers and sisters in Christ sustain us through our trials, through our burdens, through our heartache. And, and we, as we live for God. And so joy to find the source of that joy is a relationship with the Father, with the Savior, and with fellow believers. What's your relationship with God like this morning? Oh, pastor, it's great. Well, good. What's your relationship with your fellow believers like this morning? Oh, well, that needs some work. If it does... It's because the other relationship needs some work too. And we look and we understand that if I would be a Christian whose life would be marked and defined by joy, I must love the Father. I must allow the Father to love me. And I must love my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I must allow them to love me. Secondly, this morning we see joy demonstrated. Or the service of joy. When you have different, you realize that the Christian life is about serving the Lord and serving one another and serving uh, the will of God. And so joy demonstrated is that service of joy. And verses 12 through 17, this is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. I command you to love one another as I love you. And greater loveth no man than this, and a man lay down his life for his friends. Listen, it's a wonderful thing that Jesus Christ laid his life down on Calvary's cross to pay our sin debt. But he calls upon us to lay our life down on the altar for the will of God. And we think about Romans 12, 1 and 2 often, but we seldom equate or apply them into this scenario. But the reality is, is that my life is to be a living sacrifice to help facilitate the love of God in your life. And vice versa. Are we giving ourselves, are we willing to lay our lives on the altar of sacrifice for the love of Christ and for the love of the brethren? It is the service of joy. To love as he loved. Again in verse number 12. This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. That service of joy is simply obedience. The defining trait of joy is the love of God. It is relationship. But the demonstration of that joy is obedience. Obedient to love as he loved in Philemon, uh, in verse number 7, uh, we see that uh, in that little short book of the New Testament in which Paul is, uh, is writing as he introduces the letter uh, to this man that he's speaking to. He says, For we have great joy and consolation in thy love because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Who have you refreshed? Who have you been a blessing to? 
Who have you been loving as he loved? How did he love, Pastor? Well, I, we could spend weeks literally on how the Lord loved us. I, uh, I want to emphasize just three aspects of Christ's love toward us that we should demonstrate to one another. Number one, this morning I would say that Jesus loved us unselfishly. He was not selfish in his love for us. In fact, of all the miracles that the scripture records for us, the only one that he ever performed that was for his own benefit was the transfiguration. Every other miracle was for the benefit of others. Everything that Jesus gave himself to and devoted himself to was unselfish. There were times when he was tired and he kept working, ministering. There were times when he was hungry, but he just kept laboring. There were times that he needed rest. There were times uh, that... Uh, that an easier route could have been taken, but uh, he didn't do things the easy way. He did what was necessary uh, for the fulfillment of the Father's will. Why? Because he loved the Father and he loved us unselfishly. Are we the kind of people that love, but we love selfishly? I'll love you if I get this from you. I'll love the Lord if I get this from him. I'll love my brothers and sisters in Christ if I get this from them. I'll love my husband or wife if I get this from them. That's not the way that Jesus loves. Jesus loved unselfishly. Second thing that I would say is not only did Jesus love unselfishly, but he loved unconditionally. But God commendeth his love toward us in Romans 5, 8, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for me to become lovely. He loved me when I was unlovely. Pastor, you're still unlovely. Don't, don't bother with my point. Just <laughs> He demonstrated his love. Not when we had our act together, but when we didn't. Not when we had it all figured out, but when we had no understanding. To love unconditionally. <laughs> Thirdly, I would say that he loved sacrificially. His love was sacrificial. He did <clears throat> lay his life down for his friends. He did make that sacrifice. So we see that to demonstrate that love, that service of joy in the Christian life is to love as he loved. And then secondly, it is to continue or to abide in love. Notice verse 9 again. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. Verse 10, if ye, if ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. In verse 13, greater love hath no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. Continue. Abide in that love. To be continuing in that love. Listen, it's not to come in one day uh, and be uh, have the joy of the Lord and to come in the next than to be all moody and all difficult to get along with. That's not abiding. It is the aim of the Christian life that we abide or that we continue in his love. Oh, pastor, I had a bad day. Everybody has a bad day. Get, God for, get, get God's forgiveness. Get your brother and sisters in Christ's forgiveness. And then get back on the joyful ground and move forward for God. Just keep getting up and keep moving forward, but abide or continue in that love. Listen, we, uh, when, if you feel unloved, it's not because God loves you less. It's because you've lost sight of the fact of how much he loves you. He loves us. Love as he loved. We see that we must be continuing in that love. In 1 John uh, chapter 1 uh, and verse number uh, 4, uh, he speaks of this and. 1 John 1, 4, when he says, 
when he says, And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. He says, I'm giving you all this, church, so you, your life can be filled with joy. He's not promising a lack of trial. He's not tr promising a lack of tribulation. He's not, he's not promising a, a lack of turmoil. He's promising, though, in the midst of it all, a life of joy. In 1 John chapter 4, in verse number 12, No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. What is the best way for a brother or sister in Christ, especially a new believer, to experience the love of God? For a brother or sister in Christ to love them as God is loving them. When I love you the way God loves me, even if you don't know who Christ is, you'll be drawn to Him. As we look and we understand, Pastor, that's, that's hard and that's, I understand. It is a supernatural thing. It is not something that we can do in our flesh. It's an old devotional that draws attention to point out the two shortest verses in the Bible. And you're thinking, you know what they are. Uh, what in the world does that have to do with this? And as our attentions are often directed to these two shortest verses, they note that Jesus wept is the shorter of the two in English. The other, however, only has two words in Greek. Jesus wept is three words in Greek and two in English. And 1 Thessalonians 5.16 is two words in Greek, but three in English, and it's rejoice evermore. However, one surely can see the lovely connection between the two verses. That we as God's people, as Christians, that have joy that flows from the sympathy and the grace of our Savior, realize that because Jesus wept, we can rejoice evermore. Because we have lived in Him and experienced His love and loved Him, we understand that if I have the right relationship with my Father and I have the right relationship with the brethren, then I can have the joy of the Savior. How do I experience that, Pastor? It's simple. Establish the relationship and then be obedient to the command. Am I, it's not suggested that I love the brethren, but pastor, you don't understand how hard it is to love so-and-so. I have a pretty good idea. Now let's face it, not everybody is easy for us to love. For some people, I'm not easy to love. For some people, some people are just easy to love. Some people are harder to love. Some people do everything they can to make you not love them. Some people are resistant. Some people have no understanding of the concept. Some people are just uh, strange and weird and quirky and they're just hard to be around and hard to tolerate their presence. And, but that doesn't matter because he says if you understand the love of God, then the love of God is in you and must be bestowed upon them. It's not, it's not if it's easy for you to love that person just and the one that you don't like very much, just leave them aside and God will send somebody else to love them. That's not what he says here. He says, love them as he loved you. Do you think everyone is easy for Jesus to love? He loved Judas. I would imagine that was pretty difficult. And we look and we understand the reality of the Christian life is that I must establish relationships and then I must be obedient. And then comes our flesh. Joy deflected. The spoiling of joy. So pastor, why end on this? Because... Every Sunday when we come in and we look at each other, do we see joy or do we see Christians whose joy has been spoiled? 
what spoils joy? Now, I'm not saying that everybody's got to walk around with some cheesy grin on their face all the time. That's not my point this morning. But I am saying when you engage with somebody, there ought to be some, some joy there. I mean, if you're walking down the hallway and your heart's trained on thoughts and you're thinking about things you got to get done and you're consecrated, that, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you come into someone's presence and you engage in conversation with them, is there something about you that says, I love my father and my father loves me and I love you the way that he loved me? Is there something that emanates from you that says the love of Christ is within me? Or do all they experience is some grumpy old sour Christian that's miserable in their Christian walk? When we look and we understand that joy is deflected or is spoiled by disobedience. It's really not that complicated. I am either obedient to his command to love as I am loved. Or I am disobedient to his command to love as I am loved. And if I'm obedient, I'll have love and joy and peace and meekness and temperance and all of the fruit of the Spirit. And if I don't, then I'll have misery and anguish of soul. I'll have no peace of mind. I'll have no joy in my life. It is simply put a failure to abide in the love of God. If I have no joy this morning, say, Pastor, I want to have joy. I want to walk with God, and I don't. What's my problem? I understand what I need to do, but what is it that's stealing joy from me? It is a failure to abide in the love of God. You've simply lost sight of the, how much God loves you. Yeah. You've simply lost sight of how much He sacrifices for us, how much He provides for us, how much He is involved in our life, how much He longs to be with us. The second thing is, is that it's a failure to abide in our love of our fellow believers. That failure to abide in the love of God and then the failure to abide in our love of our fellow believers. A Christian without joy lacks peace, lacks compassion, sees everyone else's faults but their own, has a critical spirit, and lives a miserable life of a Pharisee without joy and without love. But the Christian who is obedient to the command radiates joy. It's a joy that cannot be contained. Charles Spurgeon, in teaching his students and getting them ready for ministry, was emphasizing to his class the importance of making his facial expression and, and countenance and eye contacts harmonized with the message. And he said to them, when you speak of heaven, let your face light up. Let your eyes be irradiated with a heavenly gleam. Let your face shine a reflected glory of God. And when you speak of hell, well, then your regular face will do. Don't be that kind of a Christian. That all it takes to, to, to preach a message about the misery of hell is for them to see your normal countenance. We look and we see that God wants to be at home in our heart. That he wants to be on the throne of our life, principal reigning, of whom a child once remarked that she believed that he went to heaven every night because he was so happy every day. Once used a wonderful metaphor about the Christian's joy. And he said this, joy 
is the flag which is flown over the castle of the heart when the king is in residence. And the bottom line here this morning is this. If the love of God and the person of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ are on the throne of my heart and I am yielded and surrendered to him and I am dead to self, then the flag of joy will fly over my castle. But if I'm living for my own satisfaction, my own gratification, my own selfish, in my own selfish way, then the flag of misery will fly over my life. The beauty of this this morning is simple. It is either that I'm going to live my life for myself and be miserable, or I'm going to live it for Jesus and I'm going to have joy. Say, Pastor, that doesn't make sense. If you, you, you got to go and do all the things that make you happy. We're not talking about happiness. We're talking about joy. But I do believe that you cannot truly have joy and not experience a lot of happiness along the way. Happiness can be a narcotic. It can be a temporary appeasement or relief from trouble and turmoil. Or joy can be a permanent solution to all that ails me and steals the life out of me spiritually. Joy identifies me with God's love. And joy gives me the ability to love others even when it's not easy. Even when I'm diseased. Even when I'm attacked. Even when I'm living and have my eyes distracted. Focus on the Savior. When we live in obedience to him and his love will have joy, God will be pleased and lives will be drawn to Christ.